Well, we've been in uh, Romans now for a little while. Uh, we'll be saying that for quite a while longer. Um, and uh, so let me read for us Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, um, and then we'll dive in together. Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, writing to the uh, church at Rome, says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath, the anger of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You. Echo what Pastor Mark has already said in our corporate prayer, we thank You for the unbelievable, unmistaken mercy of revealing Yourself to us. None of us deserve to know anything about You given the treason of our sin towards You. And yet You have gone far, far beyond that. You've given us page after page describing Yourself. And so I pray that your spirit, the one that you sent after your son ascended, that he will work to take hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh, to take ears that really are bored by your word on our own. Don't see the need for your word on our own. Would he work right now and would he make us attentive to your word? Would you use your word, Father, to make much of what you have done through Christ, the incredible love you have shown to us, Father, we thank you for. We pray that as it is on display in Romans 5, it might be on display in the hearts of your people. We ask this, Father, to you. We trust that you can work. And now, Father, we turn it over to your spirit. Amen. Well, there in... Uh, Romans 5, you see in the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1, we get a therefore. And one of the key things to learn about reading the Bible in, in any literature, if you see the word therefore, you ask what? What is it therefore, right? Exactly. All right, what is this therefore? Well, the answer is it's got something to do with 
uh, something in the past. In other words, if somebody started a letter with therefore, uh, the first thing you would be saying to yourself is, what is this about? It's about something I don't know about yet, right? Well, Paul doesn't start his letter there, but starts chapter 5 there, which makes us ask, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about what he'd already said in chapter 4, but he's also talking about really what he said in the entire book. So I take you back to Romans chapter 1, where Paul opens up, and in verse 16 and 17, he utters these words, two of the most important verses in all of Christendom. And he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So this is about defining the gospel. For it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. How is it revealed? From faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a verse that we keep coming back to. And we keep coming back to it because Paul has not turned his attention away from it. Paul is arguing that he is not ashamed of the gospel. The good news that he delivers. The good news is the fact that God, out of His own good pleasure, on His own, saves His people from their sin in spite of their inability to keep the law. That's the Gospel. So, as we move through chapter 1 there, we round out chapter 1, all the way up to about the midpoint of chapter 3, Paul shows that all people, Jew and non-Jew, suffer from the same problem of sin. The problem of sin is as wide as it is deep. That is, the problem of sin affects everyone, and everyone to whom it affects, it is all-encompassing, it is fully debilitating. Paul explains at the end of chapter 1 that for the non-Jew, they have completely ex exchanged the glory of God for idols. They don't even see the problem of their sin, and they don't see their need to be saved by God. Now you move into chapter 2 and 3, Paul then turns from the non-Jew to the Jew. The Jew, he says, does seem to recognize their need for a solution to the sin problem, but believes that his works are sufficient to solve the problem. And Paul argues that his sin is so bad, and his good works are so minuscule, that the Jew on his own is in no better shape than the non-Jew. After delivering this rather devastating news, and think about it, it's pretty devastating both to the Jew and to the non-Jew, Paul turns to apply the good news. There in about verse 22, 21 and 22 of chapter 3, Paul gives us this statement. This is a statement of the Gospel. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So whether a Jew or a non-Jew, there is an offer to be saved from God's anger towards our sin by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who paid the debt of our sin by dying the death we should have died and by living the life, the perfect life that we failed to live. While we cannot do anything 
to pay for our sin problem, we have the good news that Jesus, God's Son, has paid for the problem for us. We have access to salvation not by law-keeping, but our faith in Jesus, the promised one of God. And then in chapter 4, Paul takes chapter 4 and he uses Abraham as an example of one who enjoyed the gospel in this way. Abraham was chosen and saved by God, not because of his law-keeping, says Paul, but because of his faith. His belief in his, in his own power would not save him, but his belief that the power of God would save him. Alright, that's all background. That's, that's the first verse. First word of chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore. Right? What's the therefore? Well, there you go. I think chapter 5, Paul is anticipating an objection to the Romans hearing the letter. And I'm going to try to offer an example. We're going to carry this example all the way through. Um... We'll see if it works. So I have the privilege of being a customer of American Airlines. Great airlines. Um, and when I go to book a ticket, I have two options. Um, I can purchase a ticket with money, or I can use my frequent flyer miles. So the more you fly, the more miles you get, and you can then use those miles, redeem it to purchase tickets. Everybody gather so far? So just imagine that tomorrow, American Airlines announced that they are no longer allowing folks to purchase tickets with money. All tickets from now on, says American Airlines, must be purchased using miles. One more catch, passengers can no longer earn miles by flying frequently. No, all the miles will just be credited by the company into your account. So on one hand, as a passenger, I'm pretty elated at this news. This is really good news. I could potentially save a lot of money. I, I rarely buy tickets with miles because you need so many miles to be able to buy a ticket. So this would be pretty good news for me. I no longer need to use money. On the other hand, to be quite honest with you, this news would terrify me. While I don't enjoy buying tickets, at least I know that if I need a flight, I can get a flight. With such a change, I would be fully reliant upon the airlines to offer me credits to offer me to fly. And the more I fly would do me no good. I couldn't make up how to get more credits. So while I might welcome the news of free airfare, I want something something to give me assurance that I need a flight. If I need a flight, I can get a flight. So in one sense, yes, it's good news. On the other sense, eh, I'm a little anxious. Paul realizes that while his declaration that God has offered salvation as a gift might come as welcome news, to many it's going to bring anxiety. Like me, accustomed to exchanging my money for a flight, so also the law keepers were accustomed to clutching their religious deeds, their good morals, as a promise to exchange it for salvation. 
Paul realizes he has to help them find some type of assurance, something to convince his audience that they can still expect salvation. Chapter 5 is the beginning of him responding to that anxiety. So keep all that in mind. We're going to come back to it. Paul first lays out three objective facts about the gospel. In the first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, comma, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. First objective fact. First, Paul says believers now have peace with God. Now Paul is not referring here to some sort of sense or feeling of peace. That's a different, uh, a different text. He is talking about a status of relationship. He says at the beginning of verse 1 that because believers have been justified, since we've been made right by the sacrifice of Jesus, we now have peace with God. So the straightforward assumption is that we understand that there were times when we did not have peace with God. But now, because of our belief, because of our faith in the work of Jesus, there is no longer enmity between us and God. There is objective peace. So returning to our airfare airline analogy, we might understand Paul as saying we can relax because we are no longer on the no-fly list. As if to say, you thought all this time you could just go purchase a ticket if you needed to fly, hop on a flight. Little did you know, says Paul, the entire time your name has had you grounded because your name has had you on the no-fly list. This is so important. As we are sharing the gospel with friends and family, folks around us, it is so important that we help them see this obstacle. Most folks don't know that they're on a divine no-fly list. They, they will not understand on their own why they are on it. We have to explain what God's expectations and requirements are and explain how every one of us is once, at least, on the no-fly list. But only through the work of Jesus on the cross was our name removed from the no-fly list. Second objective fact about the Gospel. Paul explains that we should be encouraged by abundant grace. It says in verse 2, Through Him, that's Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into His grace. Grace is a big religious word for gift. It's gift. Into His gift in which we stand. So while in verse 1 he said we're justified by faith, or we might say had our name removed from the no-fly list by faith, here in verse 2 he says it is faith that gives us access to abundant grace in which we stand, or in which we can have confidence. So returning to our analogy, we might imagine Paul saying, go log in to your frequent flyer account, and when you log in, I want you to do something. I want you to go to the area where they show you how many miles you have to spend. Go take a good look at that huge balance. You can fly anywhere you want. 
Why should believers not be anxious about their lack of purchase power through law-keeping afforded by the Gospel? Because the Gospel gives them far more credit than they could have ever earned before. Our faith, our belief in Jesus as our promised King and Lord has given us access to grace upon grace. So much so that God doesn't just see us as wayward passengers who just got removed from the no-fly list. No, no, no. He sees us as, his, as perfect as His Son Jesus. He treats us like first-class favored passengers, not the freeloafers that we are. So first, be encouraged because you used to be unable to fly and now you can. Second, be encouraged because while you thought you had the ability to purchase tickets, you never had money nor miles before. Now, because of the gospel, you have a massive credit of grace that's yours to use. Then at the verse, end of verse 2, Paul turns to the third reason for encouragement. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We get happy about the hope of the glory of God. Paul says believers can be encouraged in the gospel because we have reason to be excited about the hope of experiencing the fullness of God's glory. Now just let those words sink in. Again, they're religious words. We don't use them that often. They feel weird. We can get excited because we have hope about experiencing God's glory. Now that's interesting because in chapter 1, in verse 23, when he was just describing the problem with the non-Jew, do you know what he said the problem, with, well really with all of us is? We have exchanged the glory of God for a lie. We exchanged the glory of God. Now that's interesting. Then, so, or let me put it this way, that, that might be what got us on the no-fly list. We exchanged the glory of God for lie. That got us on the no-fly list. Then in chapter 3, verse 23, he says, We have all sinned and fallen short of the, finish it, glory of God. So you, you might say that is describing our inability to get ourselves off the no-fly list. Paul says that we, the same ones who exchange the glory of God for idols, we, the same ones who have fallen short of the glory of God, can now rejoice in our future participation in what? The glory of God. Participation in the glory of God is everything our hearts desire. It's every longing finally made right. It's all our impulses rightly fulfilled. It is heaven. It's living in perfect harmony in the presence of God. It is the rest that we all desperately long for. Turning to our analogy. Paul says we don't need to be anxious about the gospel, the good news, but greatly encouraged. Prior to the gospel, we thought we could fly. The entire time our name was sitting on a no-fly list. If we'd have just shown up at the airport, we'd have found out, you're going nowhere. Now, by God's grace, we can fly. We can be right with God. 
Prior to the gospel, we had no ability to purchase a ticket, no ability to please God or stand before Him. Now we have massive amounts of grace. We can please God. We can buy a tick, any ticket we want. And then finally, Paul explains that before the gospel, we were stuck with a single destination of judgment due to the consequences of our sin. Now it's as if Paul pulls out a massive map and says, look at it. You name it, we fly there. By telling us that we have share in the glory of God, he's telling us there is no limit to the joys awaiting us. We have the ability to enjoy the greatness of God forever, non-ending joy. So I am curious, how many of you all, if you feel like raising your hand, would count yourself as one who really enjoys traveling? Really enjoys it. Okay. Yep. All right. Good. Good for you all. God help you. Um, but that's great. Um, so I'm happy to be where I am, but good for you all for enjoy traveling far away. But no, uh, Imagine then, you are going to be great for this. I try to keep putting myself in this analogy and it just didn't work out as well, but I think you're going to find this good. Okay, so imagine, after being told all this great news, that while you used to not be able to fly, you can now fly. Okay, you got that in your mind, you got the juices going. You have a massive balance to get tickets and you can go uh, as many tickets as you want and you can go anywhere you want. You all feeling it? You travel lovers, now you're excited? Okay. Then I tell you that you actually can't book any tickets until the airline sends you a special invitation. Meanwhile, you need to just keep on doing what you're doing. You continue to live your life, go to work, do your thing. Just wait for your invitation. When might it come? Oh, it could come at any moment. Could be decades. Just wait. I think I just frustrated a lot of you all. Paul gets that. Paul knows he just did that to us. That's the setup. And that's why we have verses 3 through 11. Paul is answering this question right there. You just got me all excited, so why am I not enjoying that now? Paul says, I get it. I got to answer that. That's what verses 3 through 11 is. It's his way of saying, why am I not enjoying it now? So let's look together. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. If you got something to underline with, underline that. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our present trials, our temptations, our tribulations, our frustrations, our mistakes. We do this because we realize that these sufferings produce endurance. They produce patience. So as we deal with life, as we deal with problems such as sickness, disease, and death, so we deal with temptations and struggles with sin, 
as we deal with injustice and wickedness and evil, all of this helps us grow patience. As we grow more patience, we grow a tested character. We begin to shed some of the trappings of this world. We begin to let go of some of the hope that we put into temporal, earthly things. In other words, we begin to exchange the glory of God for mortal things. No, sorry. We begin to no longer exchange the glory of God for mortal things. But we begin to exchange the mortal things for the glory of God. And as this happens, our character helps us become all the more ready for the glory, for the hope in the glory of God. So as you think about our letdown travelers, they're pretty disappointed after hearing that invitation business. You can imagine there would be a few reactions. After a few years, days or years, of not getting the invitation, some, maybe most, would just forget about those promises altogether. This, thing, this is never going to happen. Forget it. It's just not worth it. In fact, they just might take all their time and money and cash in for an RV and go travel the state county to county. On the other hand, there are a few others. While they certainly don't enjoy the wait, it's funny. Every day they get a little bit more excited. The harder life gets, the more often they find themselves going online, logging into their account, and just staring at the balance. They get more excited. The more often they get hit with disappointments, the more often they suffer injustice, the more they fail, all the more they begin to log in and look at all the destinations that they will get to go on one day. And see all the promised places where they could go. They, they begin to imagine what those trips are going to be like. All the more they dream about what life will soon be like. All the more they begin to share with others about this life of theirs that's coming. This promise that they believe in. It's as if the harder life becomes. And the longer they wait to receive the invitation the more they let go of this world and the more, they, the more they check into the world to come. And that's what Paul speaks of when he says that not only do our sufferings bring patience, but our patience brings character. And our character, it just chisels out hope. As we are molded and made by our sufferings, we are focused on the joys of a life that is yet to be promised. This is one of the sweet joys of being in a church that has folks who are 80 days old and 80 years old. When I see our members, senior members, walk into each Sunday, I am so encouraged. They don't always spring into the sanctuary with the same bounce as some of our younger folks. They get in here. As I see you come in each Sunday to hear the Word and to worship, I can't help but see you as living testaments of God carrying you along by the balance of grace purchased by His Son. One more Sunday you'll show up. One more Sunday you will hope in the Word that is preached. 
One more Sunday you will stand forth and one more Sunday you will hope for what's promised. Some of you have suffered tragic moments, shed heavy tears, felt innumerable pains, but you're still hoping. You're still logging in week after week and checking the balance. Your Savior has purchased for you. It's suffering that produces the patience. It's patience that produces a character. And it's character that chisels our hope. But to be honest with you, on its own, that could just be all Oprah talk. Keep on keeping on. Don't lose hope. You can do it. Take another step. I have no idea if Oprah says that, and I apologize to her if she doesn't. But Paul anchors this with a trillion pound anchor in verses 5 through 11. What is this hope? How do we know we're not going to not get an invitation? Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. Perhaps the person who continues to hold out hope for airline invitation will be nothing short of just a huge joke. Paul says we have a major reason not to believe that lie. Why? Because we have experienced the love of God that has been divinely poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. But notice, please notice, please notice, he does not say that we don't lose hope because we have loved God. That is not there. He says we don't lose hope because God has loved us. And he goes to explain that in the next few verses. Verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. It's pretty straightforward. Paul basically says, try to find someone who will die for somebody else. Perhaps you'll find someone who will die for a really good person. Maybe. But you will not find anybody who's going to give their life over for a wicked person. God's love for you is so massive, so deep, that He gave over the most perfect, the only perfect person in the entire planet, Jesus Christ, and had Him die for you, a wicked sinner. Die for me, a wicked sinner. He purchased in that massive credit, He purchased removing us from the no-fly list. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? Since we know and believe that God has paid the massive payment for our sins, namely shedding the blood of His Son Jesus, we have all the more reason that He's going to fulfill His promise. If God did all the work to remove you from the no-fly list, if He worked that hard to get that balance of grace for you, if He's already prepared a place for you, 
Why would you ever let the sufferings of this present age cause you to doubt that He will one day allow you to experience all the joy He's promised? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more? Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God didn't offer you a massive balance of grace after you proved your ability to get off the no-fly list. That's not how it worked. No, that's the crazy part. He gave you a massive balance of grace while you were still on the no-fly list. You don't have a thing to fear. You are His and He will sin for you. You did nothing to earn His love. You did nothing to be reconciled by Him. He has loved you, and He will reconcile you. Charles Hodge, he was the second president at Princeton, he wrote this of these verses. If He loves us because we loved Him, He would love us only so long as we love Him. And then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts. But God loved us as sinners. And Christ died for us as ungodly people. And therefore, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. Paul says we can endure the sufferings of this life as we consider the hope that is coming in our share of glory. We can rest assured that we'll enjoy the glory of God because God's love has shown itself evident in our lives. I've had a few major moments in my understanding of theology. Many came from sermons that I've heard. But one that uh, I think I've shared with this to you before came in a lesson I taught here at Cornerstone a few years back now. I asked the question to the group, when you close your eyes tonight, what is the one thing you, of which you can be certain? If you close your eyes tonight, what is the one thing of which you can be certain? And I got various answers. And uh, Jessica Short answered this. The love of God. I can still remember. I remember where... I, remember, I have a horrible memory. I mean, it's horrible. Uh, but I can remember that. I can remember hearing the answer. And I can remember there being this really awkward time in the room because I wasn't talking. Because um, I instantly realized that was not the answer for which I was hunting. It was a hundred times better. I can't tell you the number of times I've thought of that as I've looked across the Scriptures. It's the right answer. It actually is the only answer. What is the only thing tonight when you lay your head down on the pillow of which you can be certain? Just think about how massive this is. There's only one thing you can be certain of. The love of God. That really is a summary of this passage. It's as if Paul is saying... You cannot rely on the works of your law as your assurance. You can rely on something a hundred times more sure than that. You can rely. You can live. You can bank on the love of God. It's as if the gospel sends each of us into the King of glory 
completely empty-handed. We have nothing to show as we stand there before Him. Nothing. And at the same time, the Gospel sends us in there with something a hundred times better. We are clothed with the promise of the love of God.